I, uh, I sent notes to end this week just on about what I was going to be speaking on, and I kind of gave Paula liberty to do whatever she wanted to. Then she gave me this graphic, or somebody did, and this, and this title, because I just had a kind of a milquetoast title, and she really did well with it. And that is the substance of what I'm going to be talking to you about, is uh, an upside-down kingdom. I think what she described in her graphic was a picture of uh, two realms. Both are very real, and both are, uh, but in totally different ways. There's the one is the natural world that we experience with our physical senses, and there's a totally different realm that's the kingdom of God that's not perceived through the physical senses. Both views have their, their beliefs, and uh, these system of beliefs are based on totally different perspectives on what's true and what's reality. You with me so far? So we're talking about two different worlds that are in collision here. One of them is unseen, it's perceived differently, and the other is seen with the natural senses. It's the one we live in every day, and we begin to look at this world as if this is our reality. But um, I want to give you a, an overhead. Can you do that first overhead? Do you have those? This is a quote. I'm going to read this through with you and then kind of talk you through it. This is from Bill Johnson. I think it's so good that you may not be able to get it in one setting because it's just rich. You know how he is just so full of words and they have such meaning. But it says this, your heart is the seat of your mind, your imagination, will, desires, emotions, affections, memory, and conscience. The heart is included in all of those things. That's what the heart encompasses. That's, that's the essence of who you are, your, imagina- your imagination, all of your, your, that's going on internally. He said, it is also the center of your communion with the Spirit of God and possesses the faculties that perceive spiritual reality. So it's our heart that actually sees this new world that's unseen. It's the, it's the communion of all that we are with the Spirit of God, and we come into that place of connection with Him. This other realm becomes a reality. And he goes on to say, Scripture refers to this spiritual perception as the eyes of our heart. Thus, your heart is what enables you to have faith. You couldn't have faith unless you were able to see into this world and see the substance of that reality in that moment with the Holy Spirit. So when he brings revelation, we have that connection with our imagination and our desires, all that's in our heart, and suddenly faith is born. And it's as real as anything tangible in this room because it was birthed in the other world. And it's something that's a gift to you in that transaction, that exchange. So your faith grows as your heart, led by the Holy Spirit, perceives and understands. Are we there yet? Ready to go. Your faith grows as your heart, led by the Holy Spirit, perceives and understands the invisible realm of spiritual reality. And is, is that too wordy? What, I'm, what he's saying is, when we come into this place by invitation with God and we respond and our heart responds to this, this invitation, there's a communion with the Spirit that begins to flow things of the kingdom of God into our lives and they become a reality. So far so good? That unseen realm governs the visible realm and brings your mind and will into agreement with the reality of the kingdom. 
So as you see this message or you perceive and get this, this download from the Holy Spirit and it becomes faith, as you begin to act on it, it becomes manifest in this realm, in this world, as you're obedient to what the Lord gives you and you begin to speak it into your life as we just did in spiritual warfare, it begins to become a reality. Now, as you will see, that's exactly what Jesus is revealing in his Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I am continuing this series and teaching out of the Beatitudes, I was just, I was just talking to Emily a few minutes ago, and I said, the reason I'm doing this is because for so long I've heard other people tell me what Jesus said. I think it's good for us to go back and examine for ourselves. What did he say? And do I have a full grasp on that? Do I really understand the message of Jesus, or have I just heard someone tell me what they think it is? So I'm going to tell you my perception, my thoughts on this, and I think they are doctrinally correct, and I'm going to go through what I believe Jesus is saying here, and this is more than just a, a checklist of blesseds. These are the foundation of this new kingdom that he's ushering in in this moment, in the, in right in front of his disciples. Now, overhead number three, if you would please, this is the introduction. Day one, Jesus walks out and he said, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. He saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, was seated and his disciples came to him and then he began to teach them, saying. Now it's good practice in the Bible to, when you read, you try to get in the author's head and in his mind, and trying to understand what he's saying in the context of that historical, that culture, and what was going on at the time, so you can understand what he was saying to those people, and if it means something to us today that we can get hold of. Now, who was the author? Who was the person that was speaking in this moment? He's writing it. Who's speaking on the mountain? Jesus is the speaker, and who's his audience? The disciples. It's not the multitudes. They're there hanging on, wanting something from him. But he was there with his intimate followers to teach them the foundational elements of the kingdom so they could represent him in the years to come. He spent the next three years demonstrating and teaching these same principles to these same people, intimately in fellowship, time and time again. So even though these other people were present, his, he was addressing this inner circle of people. Now, who are these men he's speaking to? That's the next question we have to ask. Well, they're Jews. And so they're coming from a totally Jewish perspective. Am I right, David? They're thinking in terms of their culture, their history, their understanding of Scripture and what's been taught to them. So Jesus is speaking to a Jewish culture, and he's addressing them about spiritual matters and this is a conflict of the old traditional religion and the new message of the gospel. And it's going to take some time. Because this is so radical that they didn't even get it. So in, in, um, in Bill's, in his words, he's actually renewing the minds of these men. He's speaking, Jesus spoke with great anointing. Obviously the people said, where did you get this great wisdom? How did you speak in the first person as if what you're saying you already know? Well, because he did know it. He had written the Bible himself. It was his inspiration of his spirit. So in these teachings, we see him address significant issues of spirituality 
and challenge the traditions of the Jewish nation and rewrite the Bible according to the kingdom. Matthew 5. I think it's through my, Matthew 5 and 6. Over seven times Jesus said, said these words. Now you've heard it said that, and then he would tell them one of their old understandings and teachings and something they thought was sacrosanct and law and solid. And he said, you've heard it said that, but I tell you truthfully. And then he would redefine and reinterpret what that actually meant. So today he might would come and say something like this. If you have ears to hear, then know this. Everything you see on television and on the internet is subject to examination by my word and my interpretation. Wouldn't he say something like that? What you're hearing and seeing is necessarily so. Let me tell you what they're saying and what I have to say. And he would correct us in a loving way, just like he is with these men here. They didn't know any better. Their teachers had taught them, taught them for hundreds of years the law. And he came and said, let's set this aside for the moment and let me tell you the truth. Now, in, uh, the next overhead, if you would, please. Oops, go back one. There you go. You were on the right one. This is, this is our verse for tonight. And I'm going to move through this as quickly as I can. Are you doing okay? All right. This is Matthew 5, 6 in the Amplified. And I just want to read it to you. And then I'm going to kind of break it down for you and what, terms these, what these terms mean. It says, blessed, then in parentheses, joyful and nourished by God's goodness are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then parentheses, he kind of describes righteousness, the, the writer does in the Amplified Translation, those who actively seek right standing with God, for they will be completely satisfied. Now that's a big statement. There's a lot in this. And so our theme tonight is the word righteousness. And I'm going to re-describe according to Jesus what he meant, what they thought it meant, and then what he reinterpreted to mean so they could come into the kingdom and enjoy what God had promised as a blessing and bring completeness to their lives. The Old, Jewish, Old Testament Jewish interpretation of the word righteous can be seen. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, if you would, please. Uh, the um, this first one was Saul speaking to David in the moment that he realized he had wronged David and he was basically saying to him you're more righteous and upright in God's eyes than I for you have done good to me but I've done evil to you so he's saying there's a comparative degree of righteousness uh, you're better than I am so you're more righteous than I am if, if Saul had any righteousness <laughs> but certainly he was, he was comparing David he said you're up here I'm down here and so David, even his perspective, early on he made this statement in his writing. He said, my steps, have, my steps have stayed on your path. I have not wavered from you. Because I am righteous, I will see you. When I awake, I will see your face to face and be satisfied. So David's taking the early um, perception and understanding that because he walked the right path and he was clean, that he was righteous. It's that comparative grading on a curve kind of the righteousness that the Old Testament teaches. So righteousness was a comparative term based on relative moral goodness. It's, it's, it's sort of like today I'm doing, I'm really well, I'm righteous. Tomorrow I'm not doing so well, I'm not righteous. 
And so it kind of depended on their attitude, their moral take on their lives, where they were, if they were just crashing and burning, and they were in total sin. They weren't so righteous the next day they might have repented and had gone to the, to the temple and done sacrifices and bought a good pigeon, you know, and today I'm righteous, you know, and without any concept of what he was really saying here. So, but in the upside-down kingdom, righteousness meant much more than just good moral behavior. When Jesus came teaching, he first stated the nature of the person seeking righteousness. Remember in our verse was the first symptom was that they were hungry. They were hungry for something that was right with God. So they could come into the place of God and be right with him. He said, that's righteousness. It's not what you did to get here. It's, it's what you came with and brought into this in this, this time to, between us. So he's actually saying a totally different thing altogether. He was speaking an otherworldly language. And this language he was teaching these men needed interpreting, so he was going very slow with them. Now, he nailed these, these Beatitudes one after another. And I want you to know they're in a progression of thought. The Beatitudes move through a certain sequence of a person's heart opening to God. And so if you read them, you, you read one through the, the, the whole sequence, you see they kind of bring the person into the next phase of the relationship with God. And slowly they move a person from being totally uh, bankrupt and out of sorts and having nothing to admitting his worthlessness, coming into a place of humbling himself and agreeing with God about his condition and being lifted up by God. And they move through the sequence. We're at this this one particular one here, we see that later his disciples struggle with this message as described in, between Paul and the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. In the first church, there was great conflict between the Jewish believers and this new gospel message. And had not Paul taken such a hard stand, the gospel could have easily suffered a loss and become very judgmental and legalistic and rule-keeping. But Paul stood his ground and publicly repudiated Peter and James and some of the legalistic leaders of the church, and they repented and changed their view on what the gospel message was. It, they, want, they were wanting people to be circumcised again and come back under the law, and he said, well, I'll have none of it. It's none about, nothing about your performance and your personal striving to please God. That's secondary to this issue. We see later, uh, so Jesus addressed his followers on the hillside. He was ushering in a radical new kingdom. I don't know how to say this any different, but this was, and, and hardly anybody there was aware of what he was doing, but this was a totally countercultural message he was speaking. It was a totally against everything the Jewish people believed by law. So in the Old Testament, most often this concept of righteousness is ascribed to the people, um, and it's expressed in the keeping of commandments and the rules and the checklist of right things to do. It's still in many circles of faith today. You'll see churches that are very legalistic and you have to go through, jump through the hoops just to say, yeah, I'm, I'm in a good place with God. I've been doing this. I'm reading my Bible more. I'm praying more. I'm going to more programs. I'm in Sunday school. I'm doing all these. That's our checklist of good things we do in hopes that somehow we can come to the temple and offer that up as a sacrifice and receive God's righteousness. And Jesus says, that's totally bogus. This is not what I'm talking about. You got the cart before the horse. 
If you look back further, first of all, in Psalm 143, David came to this conclusion, and I don't know where this was in his development, but he made this statement. Do not, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. He's talking to God. For in your sight, no man living is righteous. He, he had a different take on his righteousness that day, didn't he? Something had happened in his heart to make him realize that he wasn't doing so well, and maybe he wasn't the righteous person that he thought he was in the previous psalm. If you look back even further in biblical history and read it again, this time with the eyes of your heart, you would see that from the beginning of God's interaction with the Jews, it was clearly this way. Moses recognized this. In Deuteronomy, he wrote this as far back as Deuteronomy. This was his take on God's interaction with people. Now get this. Understand then, he's speaking to the Jews, and he was probably having a bad day with them because he was letting them have it, and he should have. <laughs> now understand then that this is not because of your righteousness that the Lord has given you this land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> and so he's saying clearly, this is not about you. Lucky for you, God chose you, or you'd be one of the lands that we're taking right now. God picked you out of all the pagan nations and chose you and declared you righteous and gave you the promise. It was all him, and it still is. So later in the New Testament, what does the Apostle Paul say? He reinforced that same statement by repeating a psalm. I think it's Psalm 14. He says, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. And no one does good, not a single one. Now that kind of paints a pretty good picture of everything that went on before. We understand Jesus is saying, let's put this in the right order. And so he had this to say about, this is what Jesus said about pursuing righteousness through our personal striving and our religious performance. Now these are hard words, and the next few things I'm going to read are going to make you squirm a little bit. Okay, just bear with me, we'll get through it, we'll get the grace at the end. How's that? All right, because Jesus didn't mince words. And he's saying, for I say to you, people, Unless your uprightness and your righteousness and your moral essence is more than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. So he says, if you want to deal with your personal performance and how good you are in relative comparison to other people, if that's the basis you want to address me on, I want, you to I want to tell you, you better be doing better than the Pharisees and scribes. Now, I want you to know, this, they must have shaken their heads in amazement. Because how could anyone be more righteous than the meticulous Pharisees who dotted every I and crossed every T? They were methodical and complete in their obedience. They did every single thing according to the law. And, let, and yet, this is what Jesus had to say to them. Woe to you, you self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside, in this place of communion where you should be connecting with the Spirit of God in a relationship. That's not in there. I'm adding that. <laughs> You're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. So will you put on a really good picture and you're posturing as a religious person, but inside there's nothing that's alive. 
You're doing the stuff, but without the essence of goodness that comes, that produces that fruit. You're striving in your flesh to please God by your efforts. So the Lord taught that the deep issues of life were not questions of right behavior, but conditions of the heart. You get it? He looks right past our stuff and looks right into our heart, and that's what he perceives. So, for example, let me give you a couple of upside-down statements Jesus gave. These are kingdom statements. He says, now, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. That's strong. Anybody here ever been angry with anyone? Yeah, we, we need to rethink this, don't we? Here's another one. You've heard it said that uh, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man or woman who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery in their hearts. So Jesus said, now you can just forget all this posturing and, and your checklist of right things you've done. But if your heart is still in a place of dis being disengaged and separated from God, you're still in a bad place. Can we say that? Yeah, so we see that it's the issues of the heart, the motives and thoughts and desires, all those things that were part of the heart that he's concerned with. Righteousness is not simply doing what God commands. It is actually being like him is righteousness. Even the world's greatest moral examples are people who are still subject to God's examination in their hearts. If good things are done from a natural motive, they're still just natural in their fruit. They may be philanthropic, is that the right word? They may be good moral things that people do, and we would call them good, but they were never initiated in God's spirit, and therefore he declines to approve them. How do I know that? Well, here it is in Matthew 7. You ready for another one? I'll give you all the bad news, because <laughs> this is his words. Not all who sound religious are really good people. They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't get to heaven. Huh. For the decisive question is whether they obey my Father in heaven. At the judgment, many will tell me, Lord, Lord, we told others about you. We used your name to cast out demons and to do many great miracles. But I will reply, you have never been mine. Go away, for your deeds are evil. No matter how good they were, he judged them as fleshly because he didn't initiate it through relationship of love. Everything begins in the relationship of love, and God initiates the things that we do and calls them good. You got that? Okay. So without this inner righteousness that Jesus calls, calls for, he declares it, we will certainly not enter into the kingdom. I think he's talking about now and later. <laughs> I think we don't enter into a kingdom um, atmosphere or community unless we do this in the right order and we first engage God in a heart level and have him change who we are. And these are men that have not necessarily been saved. They're, not, they're men, they're not, certainly not full of the Holy Spirit. We haven't seen Pentecost. We haven't even heard a gospel message about salvation. They haven't raised their hands and prayed the prayer. <laughs> he 
He's basically saying if you continue on this path, you can just forget about God's help because it's not initiated and approved by God. So, in his brilliant letter to the Romans, Paul <laughs> made it clear there is only one righteous place before God, and that is one that God provides for you. It turns out it's his gift to us simply because we cannot find it on our own and we're lost without him. And we needed a savior desperately to open the door to God's kindness. The true righteousness is based on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus as he died, not for us, but as us. He died as you, not for you. He was a human being to identify with you and died in your place as you, as a substitute for all that you could never correct or make a good checklist of good things to, to look good about. It's in him, Jesus, that we find right standing with God as he makes us his own and it's a gift. I think this picture, I've, I've, what I've done here, I've tried to take a bunch of these different words and put them together in something that will give you a little, little summary of what I think righteousness looks like. And then I'll read to you a couple of things that I think validate that. Righteousness is his way of doing and being right. Doing and being. They're two different issues. The being comes before the doing. You with me? All right. It's the very attitude and character of God is righteousness. It's birthed in who we are and seen in what we do. It's birthed in who we are and seen in what we do. You get the order? First, it's birthed in the heart that produces this huge swell of righteous deeds. It may be, not be so huge just yet, but it's going to be. Because I want you to know you're living in the age, I believe, when we'll see a move of the Spirit and things will change. And your efforts that have been fruitless in the past will become quite successful. God's called out people were always meant to be a consecrated people, a people set apart from darkness, a people in stark contrast to the prevailing world beliefs and attitudes and behavior. Christians were meant to be the antithesis of the world so that the world could look at them and say, what is there about you? What is there about your life that's different than us? And it'll be so good they can't point to it and say it's hate. Like they do now when we argue doctrine. Paul says this about our new condition. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You were slaves to sin, and now you've been transferred into the kingdom of light, and now... You're God's slaves. You're slaves to righteousness. And not in a bad way. This means these are people, now we are, who are totally given over to God's will and purpose. That's what it means to be a slave to righteousness. We are totally given over to God's will and purpose. Don't we all want that? And don't we, don't we just so often fall short? And I'm just here to say I'm just like you. But I read Jesus' words and I'm encouraged because he wouldn't leave us here without hope. He sent his spirit to accomplish this incredibly impossible task. And it begins with engaging the spirit with the eyes of our hearts. 
so that we can receive this incredible download of God's love and power and then go and be and do. Paul was passionate and driven to tell everyone about this upside-down kingdom. Listen to what he wrote in the fifth chapter of Romans, and I'll put, pull this together and we can eat. But I want you to hear in Romans 5 what he says about the law. This is really good. I take it from the message, so it's real clever. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. Am I right? I mean, he nailed it. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. Grace will win and sin will lose because God has ordained that and declared that over your life. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through Messiah Jesus, invites us into life, not death. A life that goes on and on and on, world without end. Isn't that a great verse? That law was not meant for you to live. It was meant to point to your incredible need for Jesus. And when you respond, we're done with that, that constraint. Everything is lived then from the spirit of God's kindness and goodness and power. Next month, we're going to talk about if, these, if we are the righteous people, we are the beings that possess this great gift, then what would it look like if we were actually doing righteous things that flowed from righteous hearts with a righteous relationship and a right standing with God because of his gift? In Matthew 13, he tells us this. Then, meaning some point in time, the righteous, those that, who seek the will of God. Anybody here seeking the will of God? Of course you are. And don't we all need help with that? And he's here to encourage us to say, seek me, seek me. Then the righteous, those who seek the will of God, will shine forth, radiating new life, like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. So there's something about us seeking him and finding this place of acceptance that causes us to be passionate about exuding that in a way that illuminates the world. We're the light on the hill. So in the hearing of his words, we are always, he finishes by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's not these natural ears. That one of mine is deaf. <laughs> He's talking about the ears of the heart. The hearing here at this place of communion with the Spirit is if you have ears to hear, hear and heed my words. Hear them and respond to them in the best way you can, and I'll help you. Isn't that his heart? So indeed, in the hearing of his words, we're always challenged to heed those words in obedience. So I want to pray for you. And I've written a prayer out, and I just spent way too much time on this because I didn't want to misrepresent the Lord, but I want to pray over you. And I believe this is our response. And I think you'd all agree with me. And at the end, if you want to, you can say amen. Otherwise, you can go, okay? <laughs> all right. So listen, if you would, just close your eyes and let me pray over us. I believe these are the words of the Lord. Take heed, my people. I've given you a hunger for this place of right standing. If you have lost your passion and hunger for this condition of heart, 
come to me so I might set you in a right place. We can begin again with your response to my word. Be changed in the renewing of your mind. And he says, here's my encouragement to you. Meet me at the place where your affections and your imagination and your desires and thoughts and conscience are touched by my spirit. And be filled with faith for this radical change in your lives. I'm willing and I'm able to do this and I'm about to move on this earth in a way that requires you to be by my side. Only believe, he says. And all God's hungry people said, Amen. Okay. Thank you for listening.